0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I was kind of having this thought go back and forth in my head, and I know none of you are like this, so that's what made me laugh about it. But I wondered if more people would be in church today, hoping to, like, nudge God towards helping their team out. Or maybe less people would be here today because they're just at home fixing amazing food. I don't know what it is, but anyways. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad for all of you to be here. Um, you know, we affirmed five new elders. This is awesome. This is really great. Um, yay! Uh, but I know some of you, some of you might be tempted to think that what happens up on the stage or what happens in those elder meetings is more important than other things that happen in the church. And that's just simply not true. What it happens on Sundays, Wednesdays, or any other day of the week is just as important. So since we're all thinking about football, we're going to dive in and I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite football players who I just learned about in the last couple weeks. Just... Anybody else do those like Wikipedia dives where you just end up reading a whole bunch of stuff you didn't need to read? Well, this one came in handy. So I want to talk to you about this guy. Uh, he played on six different teams. Uh, the first three, he was the starter. He had limited success in that time. On his fourth team, he gets hurt, and he ends up becoming the backup, and he will be the backup for his next two teams. So he plays for six teams. He's kind of a journeyman. You just think of him as a game manager. Um, uh, but he actually is known as the king of the backup quarterbacks. This guy is Earl Morrell, and uh, he ends up becoming the backup for two powerhouse teams in the late 60s and early 70s. So in 1968, he's with the Colts, and their famous starting back, Johnny Unitas, uh, gets hurt early on in the season, and Earl takes them through a great season. I think they go 13-1. And he actually wins MVP of the league as the backup quarterback because he just came in and did such a great job. He does that and then makes it to the, they make it to the Super Bowl, his team, but he's not playing great in the Super Bowl, so they pull him out and they put Johnny Unitas back in and they end up losing to the Jets. That's Super Bowl three. Well, Super Bowl five, so two years later, uh, Earl's playing backup. Johnny's healthy. Johnny plays through most of the season. And then Johnny's not playing good in the Super Bowl. He's not playing great, so they put old Earl in. He's like 38 years, 37 years old at this point. They put him in and he uh, gets them through the rest of the game and the Colts win Super Bowl V. So already this is great, but this is not even the coolest thing about Earl. The coolest thing is that in 1972, uh, and if you know about 1972 in football, you know where I'm going with this, he gets traded to the Miami Dolphins. And this is his first season with them. And he's the backup for Bob Greasy. And Bob Greasy plays the first five games of the year, wins all five games, but he gets hurt in that fifth game. And so they put in our backup, Earl Morrell. And he goes on to win nine, the rest, the, the next nine games, the rest of the regular season. He wins all of those games. So they have a perfect season. Then Earl and Bob, they share duties a little bit through the playoffs. And, uh, uh, but then they start Bob Greasy and the Dolphins win the Super Bowl, capping off the only ever perfect season all the way through the Super Bowl that's ever happened in NFL history. But this guy, the backup, won nine of the games, more games than the starter. And that's gonna that, that ties in really well with the passage we're gonna look at today. In Acts 6, the, some backups get put in, and their role is just as important as the starters. Okay, so we're gonna look at Acts 6 together. And I'm going to just read it for us. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number and complaint by the Hellenists or Greek speakers arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith what the holy what the, the what you what God wants you to hear from this message is that the holy spirit wants to fill every one of you he wants to use every one of you and he wants to bring every one of you, every one of us into unity Every time you put a few people together, there will invariably be a conflict. So we shouldn't be too surprised that this happens in Acts 6. In verse 1, we see that in these days, the disciples are increasing in number, and a complaint comes up. And the complaint centers around the, the Greek-speaking widows, who were Greek-speaking Jews who had come to follow Jesus. They were not getting treated fairly, like the Aramaic-speaking or Hebrew or uh, you know, the, the natives of Jerusalem were getting treated. The church had a conflict. This complaint arose, but before we get into the details, all the details of that, we should think about what was the church like before this conflict happened? Uh, up until this point, the church had not been crisis-free. They had had crisis, but it was deeply engulfed in an innocence in and in its, in its own infancy The church was very much like that little cute baby just sitting on its dad's knee. It wasn't perfect, but it was so sweet and so awesome just to look at that you just forget everything else. Even though there were multiple points of crisis or conflict before this story, there's this overarching theme of just this sweet infant movement that's pure and growing in amazing ways. One example of that is actually in Acts 4, and in verses 33 through 35, it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, and there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. We see that grace was on them all. There was not a needy person among them, and everyone was living in complete unity. There was such a sweet spirit over the church. The apostles, either some of them or all of them, it happens twice, uh, they get arrested, but they get set free. Um, even back in Acts 2, the apostles get accused of drunkenness when they're preaching at Pentecost, but then Peter lays out a great sermon and just refutes that, answers them all, and, uh, and it goes great. Uh, a bunch of people come to know Jesus. Closer to this story in Acts 6, there's another conflict or crisis. And that's when a couple, uh, they sell some land, but they lie about how much they sold it for so they can keep some of the money for themselves. But even then, God shows up, he's decisive, he judges them quickly and immediately and effectively, uh, and and it's handled. As we uh, study the Bible, uh, a lot of what we do is we focus in on a passage, we zoom out, we zoom back in, sometimes multiple times, And we're trying to see the context and the story that God is developing. So as we zoom back into our story, the conflict arising is is directly targeted at that unity that the church had and at the fact that they had no needs. So now needs are coming up and disunity is coming up. What we'll see is that the cute little baby had to slide off his dad's lap and put his big boy pants on and figure out what to do. Uh, this conflict came because uh, the widows who were Greek-speaking Jews, they would believed in Jesus. They were not receiving the same care as the Aramaic, Aramaic-speaking Jews who had also believed in G- Jesus, these widows. They were not see- receiving the same care. We don't know why the Greek speakers came were in Jerusalem. Maybe they came for the Passover, and they had believed in Jesus. The Passover was the time uh, when Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected. So maybe they'd come for that and they learned about him and came to believe in him. Uh, Maybe they came for the Feast of Weeks, which was about 50 days later. Maybe they came for that. Uh, We don't really know. Maybe they heard Peter preach at Pentecost and came to know Jesus then. But the reason they were there is less important than the fact that their widows were being neglected in the distribution of food or money for basic needs. It seems that the rapid growth of the church, mixed with the cultural bias, was causing this complaint that we see you can always bet that if you get a large enough group of people together, uh, complaints will come up, especially if that group of people is growing. If you have a church long enough with even one person in it, uh, there will be a complaint. Like, where's everyone else? (laughs) This will prove to be a test of the apostles' priorities and their problem-solving skills. But God's going to show up for them. And and God's going to show up for them because they knew the word of God themselves. Uh, When this complaint grows. Uh, comes up, it made me think of this passage. I don't know if this is the passage they had in their mind, but this is the one it made me think of. It's Isaiah 1, 16 through 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. It may be a little sidetracked, but if you guys know me, you know I love sidetracks. This may be the verse not just that the apostles had in mind when this complaint came up, but it may have been what was in the mind of the people raising the complaint. It seems like in this case that both people, the complainers and the people being complained to, had a good attitude. It's worth mentioning that complaints are not always a bad thing. In fact, this complaint Uh, Sparks something very good. They seem to know that problems are opportunities, opportunities to seek God and build relationships with other believers. It's important, even to remind ourselves here, that the widows are not the problem. They're not the problem. The problem is that they're getting treated unfairly, that there's division. That's the problem. James, the apostle James, or yeah, James, who was, he was a leader in the Jerusalem church at the time that this event in Acts was happening. And he wrote his letter probably before even Acts was written. He says in James 1:27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. At their best, uh, these twelve apostles they lay down a roadmap for us. When there is a conflict, gather the people and listen to God. The church had a conflict but they chose two things. And these two things are really important that they chose. They chose first to keep their priorities straight, and they chose seven men to fulfill the role that God gave them. These guys were a lot like old Earl. These were the backups brought in to fill a need that wasn't getting met. But their role was no less important. The church in Acts 6, we see that they choose wisely. Up to this point in Acts, they were conducting ministry in the church very much like Jesus had done. They were just kind of copycatting what Jesus had done. They reestablish the 12 apostles. They preach in the context of Jerusalem where Jesus had just finished his ministry, had just died, had just preached, died, ascended to heaven. But this act of choosing qualified men to perform a task, again, because these guys knew their Bible, wasn't new to them. They may have been thinking about Moses, his father-in-law, Jethro, who tells Moses in Exodus 18, hey, buddy, you can't do this by yourself. You need to get some help. So Moses uh, calls leaders from every group of the people. And Moses writes this down again uh, in Deuteronomy 1, 8 through 19, and he, kinda, he sets it as a statute for the people of Israel to do this. But aside from kind of the structural fix that they came up with, one of the most important precedents they set this, this, this conflict was threatening this new beautiful thing called the church was that they kept their priorities straight. It's not unimportant to note that they gathered all the disciples, not just the twelve. They brought all the disciples into this situation. But again, rather than kind of making that uh, a precedent on how we have to act whenever anything comes up, it's important, I think most important, to look through that and see that the apostles' faith is what is shining through in this. They had complete faith that this crisis would be worked out if they sought God together. They believed that God was at work in everyone and he wanted to use everyone. They knew that what we can know now, looking back, that God wants everyone to be filled with the Spirit, to be used by God, and to work together. What the apostles go on to say about their priorities shows what, that they were listening uh, to God to choose wisely. They, they say in Acts 6.2, They say that it was not right for them to give up preaching to serve tables. Now, the key thing to remember about the apostles is that they had a special job. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Do we have any eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection in here? Good for you. None of you raise your hand. Awesome. We believe in Jesus' resurrection. It's the greatest thing that we can celebrate. We get to celebrate it every Easter, but none of us were those eyewitnesses. The apostles were. This was a special thing that God knew would not last forever in his kingdom. It is evident that this was of utmost importance because if you look back earlier in Acts, Acts 1, 21 through 22, they choose Matthias. You know, Judas, the apostle, he betrays Jesus. He dies a horrible death. And so they pick another guy, Matthias, to replace him. And one of the key things you see in those verses is that he had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. He had to see Jesus' life and see his death and see his resurrection. And Matthias did that. Preaching Jesus' resurrection was so important then, it's not really any less important now, but it was so important then, they knew that they had to keep up with that. The resurrection for them was the thing to preach because it verified all the claims that Jesus had made about himself. You know, these guys were living in a time when everyone in Jerusalem probably knew about Jesus, knew about his ministry. Probably knew about his death, and so preaching his resurrection was the thing that verified that he was the Son of God and that he was the Messiah they were looking for. This sacred mission that the apostles had could not be abandoned for anything. We're gonna see them hold that priority up. But they did not view this service that was needed, this feeding of the widows, as any less important to what they were doing. They were just honest with themselves, knowing they couldn't do everything, they couldn't fulfill every role. And so they're very wise uh, in choosing these seven men. And it's even good to note that they choose seven men to serve Greek widows. And all these guys have Greek names listed. So they were probably Greek themselves or had Greek names. Back then, if you spoke multiple languages, you could have different languages in those names or different names in those languages. So these guys at least knew the culture. They knew who they were going to be ministering to. But even beyond that, the kind of men they chose to solve this crisis. They had different qualifications than the the 12. They weren't necessarily eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But their qualities, because we also aren't eyewitnesses, are great uh, qualities for us to use as examples for our own lives. Acts 6 shows us the kind of qualities that apply to us. God wants to use all of us, to use every one of you, to serve in the role he's calling you to. And these qualifications that are found, there's three of them, and they're found in Acts 6.3. They looked for men who were of good repute, filled with the Holy Spirit, and filled with wisdom. Whether these seven guys were the first deacons or not, you can read commentaries on that until you're blue in the face, it's not conclusive. Uh, In fact, it's pretty evident that these seven guys, to me, weren't the first elders, weren't the first deacons, but they were just regular guys filled with the Spirit, and chose for a specific role in a specific time and place. And that's what makes the quality of these guys so worth dwelling on for us. If we're not sure that this is a timeless pers- uh, prescriptive story then kind of hyper-focusing on you know, their, uh, what they did or who they were or what the conflict was or the system that got set up isn't what's most important. The priority for us is to look at the timeless characteristics that these guys had. We, all of us in this room, we're called to a specific time and place. Newton, whether you love Newton or don't love Newton, things you like or things you don't like. 2024, I'm sure some of us wish we were born in a different time and age. If I could have a musket and some deer to go hunt, that would be great life. But I live with technology and cell phones. Like We all have things about our time and place we love and don't love. But these characteristics, no matter what time and place we're in, will always serve us well. The first one that's mentioned is that they had a good reputation. They were men of good repute. They had good reputations in their community. Uh, It's it's really worth saying that a good reputation is easy to keep if we keep to ourselves. If we make the rules uh, in our little group for what a good reputation is, then it's pretty easy to keep those rules. But that's not what Jesus wants for us, and that's not what we should want for each other. This story in Acts takes place not very long after Jesus' ministry, and one of Jesus' biggest, longest, and latest prayers that he prays for the church, and he makes it clear that it's for the church for all ages, is in John 17. And he mentions this very subject. Jesus asks for God to keep us in the world, but also to keep us from evil. But it's really a shortcut if we just remove ourselves from the world to stay away from evil. That's a shortcut. It's not what God wants us to do. The simple fact of Jesus' prayer existing means that it is possible for us to live in the world well, though we'll be hated or criticized at times. It's possible for us to live well in the world, in this world that he is working to redeem. So the next thing after a good reputation that the apostles are looking for are men filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we kind of follow our same Bible study method, if we're zooming out and looking for connections with other passages, we don't have to zoom even outside of the book of Acts. Most of the time, this phrase in the book of Acts, filling with the Spirit is used. It's used of preaching or wise words being spoken. Uh, One example of this is when Peter gives a wise answer and then he goes on to preach these Jewish rulers are accusing him of things and he has to respond to them. And it says in Acts 4, 8 through 12, that then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them. And I won't read you everything that he said, but the the point is that the filling of the Spirit gave him the answer that he needed to respond to to the Jewish rulers who were accusing him of things. When we look at this specific instance in Acts 6 of the filling of the Spirit, we can see that the filling was discernible. You could tell that they had it. It was important because it's repeated later on as you hear about these guys and their ministry, and, uh, and also it's verified because their ministries turn out good and the problem gets resolved. Because the Holy Spirit filling these guys was discernible, it most likely points to fruit in their lives and not specific gifts that they maybe had. There's no specific gifts mentioned that any of these guys had, what is mentioned is that you could tell that they were full of the spirit. And that points a lot more, in, in my mind, in my study, it pointed a lot more to fruit. It's kind of like walking through a forest, you're going down a path, a bunch of green trees, a bunch of brown tree trunks, and all of a sudden there's a tree that is full of apples or full of peaches. Like that tree is going to catch your eye, you're going to get excited about getting a snack on your walk. Like that's the tree you, you see. And I think that was evident, that was the case with these guys too. They had the fruit of the Spirit. They had something that said, look, this guy is full of the Spirit. So I want to take a minute. Let's just read what the fruits of the Spirit are so we can maybe think about what was seen in these guys. It says in Galatians 5, 22, 20, 22 through 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It fits really that the fruit of the spirit was with them because you could see it within these guys. You could walk past it, you could smell it, you could tell. Uh, I know sometimes like in any field we're in, and we're thinking about you know the fruit of the spirit, but in any field we're in, we usually know who gets it and who doesn't. You can just tell. And I think you guys know that I used to build houses. And so when I would do that, you would get a new guy on the crew or you would get a subcontractor coming in. And just by listening to them talk, they're bragging about how good they are at something, you know they're not good at it. If they show up with new shiny tools, the best of the best tools, you know they probably don't know how to use them. You know? And you just know right away, I'm going to have to fix everything that guy does. But you also know right away, I need to watch how that guy does stuff because this guy knows it. He knows, he gets it. He knows what he's doing. I can pick up tricks from this guy. So it's one of those discernment things. And I think in this case, in Acts 6, they discerned very quickly, it was very obvious that these seven guys had, were full of the fruits of the Spirit. And I really, I really love the scriptures. They're so good for all of us because they hold, take us to task. They take us to task right away and they don't ever stop taking us to task uh, as we think about ourselves. I know um, I'm guilty at looking at some of these fruits myself. You know, I grew up here in central Kansas. I know how we are here. And we like to maybe look at the last some of the last things in this list, like faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and we say, oh, those are the good ones. Especially, uh, we love self-control. But is it really obvious to people around us that we have maybe some of those first ones, like love or joy? Can people really tell that we are joyful, that we know Jesus? Joyful that we're filled with the Spirit? Um, it wasn't just that these seven guys thought that they themselves were full of the Spirit. They didn't just think about themselves. It was obvious because it showed to the people around them. You know, I know I've been guilty of either, you know, highlighting to myself, like, oh man, I've got that one on the list. Whew. I don't have to worry about the rest of it. I've got that one. Or even redefining some of the terms, some of the words, to kind of mean, you know, more what fits with what, how I like to live, or how I feel like I am. It's It's a temptation for all of us to do. But, And that temptation is not, it's not just local to us here. That's a universal thing. The kind of filling of the Spirit that that the seven guys in Acts 6 had was obvious to those around them, and it was the basis on which they were chosen. It was very important. If you want to be useful to Jesus, that same connection to the Spirit and to the fruit that comes from that is just as important for me, it's just as important for each one of you. Now, what's really cool is the scriptures gives us these seven names. No, know the guy's one nickname wasn't Pumbaa, but it goes with Timon. It's just perfect. <laughs> Anyways, gives us their seven names. And this is significant because we'll see as we work through Acts, as the story continues, we'll see that two of these guys get mentioned again. Right away after this story, it mentions Stephen, man full of the Holy Spirit, and he ends up being the first Christian martyr. The choosing of Stephen is absolutely verified. This was a good choice. And Philip... He later on becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. Obviously, again, another great choice. So the church was beginning to learn to function without Jesus present. These are some of the first things, these first chapters of Acts, the first things the church is doing without Jesus there, telling them what to do. And it verifies both that they were doing the right thing and sticking to their preaching. They were doing the right thing and choosing these seven guys. One of the most obvious ways that, that this decision or this, this wise choice is verified, is that very quickly, the complaint is taken care of. The need is met. That's a verification, but also the ongoing ministry of all these guys. But the cool thing is God just doesn't stop there. He just doesn't use this instance to meet the need. He always does more than we can expect out of him. And what he does through this conflict and resolution is that we see the church grew by unity. We shouldn't be surprised uh, that Jesus' prayer in John 17, that prayer for unity, was answered in Acts 6. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus' prayer was answered. He was the most righteous man ever, he was the Son of God, his prayers are obviously going to be answered. And we should still be looking for those for answers to, to his prayer today. When the apostles put forward the plan of action to choose these seven men and keep themselves devoted to prayer and preaching, as we see in Acts 5, or 6.5. Uh, that it pleased the whole gathering. And that is the phrase that speaks to the unity that was present among them at that time. What could have divided the church, this, this cultural racial divide over some people's needs being met and other people's not, needs not being met, instead, it, that conflict brought about a chance for unity. It is always true that unity brought about by working things out wisely is better than some kind of forced uniformity that tries to avoid every conflict. A unity that comes from conflict, trusting each other, growing together, working through it together is so much better than enforcing a false kind of uniformity of, oh, none of us are gonna do that, because we'll end up there whether we want to or not. Not only were the leaders in tune with the Holy Spirit, the seven servants they chose were in tune with the Holy Spirit, but also was the, so was the whole gathering. They all understood what God was up to among them, and they all got on board. We can see from this conflict that the church had been spinning out of community already since it just began. But in Acts 6, they did not lose their commitment to the Holy Spirit filling every believer, using every believer, and bringing every believer back into that community. Under these spirit-led and unified conditions, the church grew. There's many times it talks about the church growing. Sometimes it adds. Uh, Sometimes people are coming every day. Sometimes it multiplies. And this this is one of the instances where it multiplies. And it grew because the word of God wasn't hindered at all by any lack of unity or by any lack of listening to the Holy Spirit. By listening to the Holy Spirit, the apostles picked men who exuded the fruit of the spirit and they all stayed knitted together undivided by the attacks of the enemy it shouldn't be too surprising that for all of us we know how we are as people and we know if they were already struggling with this in this beautiful sweet time that we're going to struggle with these things today it shouldn't be too surprising that this unity doesn't exist in the whole church today across the whole earth and not even always in our own local churches does it exist all It's always true that lots of people equal lots of problems. But the seeming impossibility, it seems impossible for unity to exist, that seeming impossibility should in no way produce apathy in us. We shouldn't just say, well, it's going to be hard to do. Acts 6 obviously and conclusively shows a group of believers committed to being filled with the Spirit, serving through his leading, and staying unified as a community, seeking to honor him. And that's exactly, in our story, what they did. It's, kind, it's really important to remember at this time in the church, the only church that existed was in Jerusalem. After this, after, the, after Acts 6, we're going to see that the, the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the world. And we live in that ends of the world time of the church. The church is spreading and growing everywhere. So we can expect that our unity as believers will produce worldwide growth, and that's the case. The church is expected to grow the fastest. Uh, it's supposed to expect expected to grow fast over the next years, that's the predictions, but it will grow in South America, it will grow in Asia, and it will grow in Africa. We don't have much control over where the church grows, but we do have control over our family here, right here at Grace Community Church, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to serve like he calls us to, and to stay unified like Jesus prayed for us to. Now, there's one more interesting tidbit. I love tidbits. I love rabbit trails. I love those things. In verse verse 7, we see something that hadn't been mentioned before. Growth came in the church by many of the priests becoming obedient to the faith. If the Bible Mentions this, then it's it's got to be important. That's true of any time the Bible mentions something. I don't know I don't know exactly why. It's not clear if this unifying, if this fixing of this conflict, directly led to the priests being reached with the gospel. But it is important to see that no part of Jewish society was uh, unaffected by the gospel. No part of it was out of reach for the gospel. Jesus. Uh, it's significant to note that these people had the most probably to lose by following Jesus. You know, a carpenter comes to know Jesus, he's a Jew, comes to know Jesus, believes in Jesus the Messiah, still a carpenter. Probably still has the same status in his community, probably still gets jobs. You know, a butcher, he's still selling meat. Like not a whole lot maybe changes. But for these priests, whether they were full-time priests or part-time priests, either way, they were losing their status and their role as, you know, doing these religious rites of being priests in the the Jewish faith. They had the most to lose. Jesus, uh, I think in this instance, in Acts 6, 7, is showing us that he's about to crack into every barrier in the world. He's about to crack every barrier. And first, he cracks some who would have had the most to lose by following him and giving up their Jewish roles. I'm guessing that none of you uh, are Jewish priests or are coming to, that, coming to Jesus from that way of conversion. But there are applications in from the story that we can all use to enrich our faith. And I kind of formed them as questions. I don't always love hard questions, uh, but after I find an answer to them, I always love the work that those hard questions do in my own heart. Um, and so I just phrased these applications as some hopefully pretty pointed and meaningful questions. So our first application question is, are we as unified as I want us to be? And not me, not just Will, but ask your question of that yourself. Like are we as Grace Community Church as unified as as you want us to be? And we know that we can only control ourselves. So in our effort to be unified, we have to look at ourselves first. We have to be honest with ourselves. Are we comfortable with high levels of disunity? Are we comfortable with that? Are we okay with that? Or are, even are we the ones bringing disunity to the table? And that is, just feeds right into the next question. Who can we go to and take one step closer to unity? Whoever that first person that pops in your mind or that first group, that's who it is. We can go and we can listen. We can learn how they think, what they've learned from God. We can, how can we both go back to God's word to get closer to agreement. Unity is not meant to be the guiding factor. It's not meant to be the end, but rather gathering around what God says until we both come in agreement with him. That's really what unity is. Not agreeing with each other, but all of us agreeing with God about who he is and about what he wants us to do. Our next application is in a question again, and it says, is the Holy Spirit recognizable in me? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident or obvious in me? If we were saved by Jesus alone, then we will have the fruit of the Spirit by being filled by the Holy Spirit alone. We have to let go of any and all attempts to manage our lives the way we want. If we think that anything other than the filling of the Spirit will bring about the life or direction uh, to us as an individual or to us as a church, then we're way off no strategy, no amount of energy, no amount of organization or creativity or programming or traditions or even strong families, none of those will produce the whole fruit of the Holy Spirit. A relationship with God is all that can produce godly fruit. Where am I co- and then our last question is this, where am I called to serve? And I kind of wanted to phrase it pretty specifically, where am I called to serve outside of Sunday morning? These seven guys that were chosen in Acts 6, they were still going to the apostles, hearing their teaching, and whatever they did during that large meeting, they kept right on doing. So this new role that they got wasn't about that. It was about something that was happening outside of that big gathering with the apostles. We should all serve where we can on a Sunday morning. For sure, we should all do that. Even if your role is being so kind and welcoming to the people who sit in your row, that's amazing. That's great service. But for the seven, just like for us, I believe, God had something practical for them to do. There is either a group of people or a mission that you are equipped for uh, to do outside of these walls. I love the simplicity and straightforward nature of this passage. Uh, I get excited about that stuff because it's easier to share and it it makes more sense. Um, But you got to remember in Acts 6, right after this, things are about to get real for the church. Stephen is going to be killed as the first martyr. They're going to go under persecution. Not everything is going to keep going their way. Things stop working out for them and they soon enter a time of turmoil. But the call that it puts on our lives still survives to this day. God wants us all to pursue him together so that we are filled with his spirit and used by him in a way that our unity is seen by everyone. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us enough to send us your word. Thank you so much for filling us with your spirit and all the wonderful things that you do. Thank you so much for the fruit of the spirit and the joy it is to live with people who offer that fruit to us and we can offer it back. What a joy that is. And God, I pray that you would encourage us all to look for opportunities, to use the gifts you've given us, to use the calling you've given to us, to use that outside of these walls. God, I pray that we would be a people known for our good reputation, known for being filled with the Spirit, and just known for loving you so much. We thank you so much, God, for this day. Help us all to have a ton of fun today if we end up going to a party. God, help us to be good witnesses wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.